Welcome, I'm Rose Aguilar, and this is your Calls Media Roundtable. Last August, Donald Trump was indicted by a federal grand jury on charges stemming from his efforts to remain in power after he lost the 2020 presidential election. Trump faces four charges, conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, obstruction of an attempt to obstruct an official proceeding, and conspiracy against rights. Trump has pleaded not guilty and is scheduled to stand trial in multiple cases in the coming months. A new frontline documentary called Democracy on Trial takes us back to the beginning of Trump pushing lies about winning the election. It also focuses on Trump asking Georgia officials to find him 11,000 votes, the January 6th House investigation, Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump making life hell for election workers, especially Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman, whose lives were turned upside down with racist death threats, Jack Smith's investigation, and so much more. Here is the trailer for Democracy on Trial. The president's intent was to stay in power at all costs. This election was stolen and from flat out said, I swore an oath. I'm not going to break it. I'm not putting on no stinking circus. They put their faith in Donald Trump and he deceived them. I don't think by any large stretch can you characterize it as bipartisan. The select committee laid the path down for the Department of Justice. Donald Trump is going to be the defendant and the candidate. It's hard to imagine how it's going to play out. That is the trailer for the new Frontline documentary, Democracy on Trial. Today, we're joined by Michael Kirk, an award-winning documentary filmmaker and director of the new film, Democracy on Trial. You can watch it at pbs.org slash Frontline on the PBS app or on Frontline's YouTube channel. And you can find links at yourcallradio.org. Well, hi, Michael. Thank you for joining us. And again, huge thanks to you and your team for yet another important documentary. Thank you, Rose. It's great to be back. Well, it's great to have you. Michael, this one is long. It is almost two and a half hours long. So obviously so much work went into this. Why did you and your team decide to release this documentary now and to go back to the beginning of Trump pushing those election lies? I think we did it, Rose, because it's uh, it's a critical uh, and and unbelievably important time in American history. It's the First time American uh, or an American president is charged with crimes in office, uh, the the crimes and the indictments and uh, all of it uh, came up in the middle of a presidential election, you know, a critical moment for the democracy. So we just said to ourselves, we've we've got to go back. We've got to lay it out. Uh, for a lot of people, it was in the rearview mirror by now. You know, I don't want to know about it anymore. I, I when I when I saw a poll that said uh, some percentage, let's say sixty percent of Republicans believe the FBI was responsible for uh, the incursion on January sixth, I thought, well, it's it's time. Let's pull it all together. What we know. Let's go get some new interviews and let's. Let's go to work on it. And it was almost impossible to contain it at two hours. So I'm sorry to say we went all the way out to two and a half hours. But you can watch it in segments on YouTube or the PBS app. You all did a great job. You know, and since you talked about that poll, Michael, one thing that really strikes me when I watch your films on the Frontline YouTube channel 
is that the comments and the dialogue are overwhelmingly positive. It's not ugly like so many of the comments on Twitter or other social media. People say thank you. Uh, the people say this is so important to go in depth. And I just wonder, do you ever hear from Trump supporters who watch your films? And what kind of reaction do you get? Or well, maybe closely yeah, former pardon. Trump supporters? <laughs> yeah, you, you do. We do hear. Uh, not always positive. Uh, I think the I think the MAGA supporters, the people who are truly Trump supporters, have been instructed by Trump over the last couple of years to just ignore it all. And I think they really do ignore it. They don't want to know. Uh, they don't. From what I can tell, they don't even want to argue about it anymore. They just figure they're going to win in the fall, and and uh, what the heck, we're not going to fight about about this. And the more they fight, of course, the more attention gets drawn to it, and and it doesn't always look good for, for the former president. So yes, we do hear, I I love the comments. When you work in television, even in Rose for You, you get callers, you get to talk to people, but right. I I make these films and they go up like, it's like the umbrellas of Cherbourg or something, <laughs> up it goes. The, the, the red balloon of my film is floating away in the skies and, and uh, it, it, thank God, uh, for streaming and that you can read those comments. And I, it's so gratifying. Uh, obviously, I read them looking through my fingers, uh, hoping that there's not something <laughs> profane or horrible, but uh, it's almost always very positive, And that's extremely gratifying. As I said in the introduction, you and your team revisited so many important moments. I think it's so important to to take people back to these points, whether it's you know, telling Trump, telling these Georgia officials, come on, guys, find me 11,000 votes, give me a break. Or wow. to just, again, sit with Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman, two Black women who were dedicated election workers, and to see their lives turned upside down. You and your team also interviewed 20 journalists, lawyers, current and former members of Congress, and Republicans who stood up to Trump. So given that you spent so much time with all of this material, what really stood out for you during this process? I think the extent to which uh, the January 6th committee, which created, as we, as many of us who are paying attention know, uh, they, 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 wanted, they wanted the event to kind of what they call pop. They wanted the American people. They'd done so much research. They'd hired 14 former special prosecutors. They really dug into the case and they really wanted people to see it. Uh, so they hired uh, the former president of ABC News, James Goldson. He came in and created what was essentially a mini series of, of hearings. So this is not your grandfather's hearings in Washington where a congressman or a woman uh, speaks for five minutes and then somebody on the other side speaks and you can barely stand to watch it. Um, this was very interesting uh, material that got a huge audience for the committee, uh, uh, as large an audience as Monday Night Football, for example, for the first uh, program, which was, you know, really well put together. It was thrilling. You had Bill Barr saying that he had tried the former attorney general. I tried to convince Trump that he there wasn't anything there. There was no there there. It was all BS. Of course, he didn't use that uh, uh, word. You had the most graphic attack, a footage of the attack on the Capitol, and it, it got huge ratings. Uh, then when it was all over and they had found criminal charges and they had filed them with the Department of Justice, which had been doing nothing 
uh, about this. The, the Biden Department of Justice had kind of not wanted to go there, I guess. Uh, but once they got these the material from the committee, they sort of had to act, but it was taking a long time. And in that period of time, everything kind of went to sleep until Jack Smith stepped up and said, here are our, here are our findings. And the findings were a, a, a mirror image of what the January 6th committee had done. So it was sort of interesting to, to revive, and we did in the film, revive those January 6th miniseries hearings and the, and, the, and the interviews and the testimony. They had something we never have. They had subpoena power. And even though not everybody went along with the subpoena, uh, they, they, they got an awful lot of very important, powerful people under oath to talk, and then we could go find them, interview them, go deeper uh, in terms of what, what we had put together. So it was a process that was really about reviving uh, the what, what a lot of people, what a lot of hardworking investigators had discovered, and, uh, and, and, and the uh, effort of the committee, Liz Cheney, Benny Thompson, others on that committee, pushing hard to uh, find out what what Donald Trump really did and to come up and formulate charges against him we just thought it it you know this is the this is the way to do it this is a, a method that that uh, reveals what happened on a kind of day-to-day -day basis and everybody loves a tiktok if they can see it and understand it and and when we did that and we leaned back and, and watched our first cuts of the film, we thought, boy, this has the potential to really be powerful and revelatory. And in, a, in an interesting way, almost like a movie, it just flows along from thing, event to event, moment to moment, and the stakes keep getting higher and higher. What really got me is things are moving so fast now and it's easy to forget important moments. I actually forgot that Senate Republicans led by Senator Mitch McConnell opposed a bipartisan commission to look at what happened on January 6th. And you talk about this in the film. As a result, then Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi created a committee of her own. She wanted it to be bipartisan, but the only Republicans who joined were Congress members Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, and they are no longer members of Congress. So I think that's what also makes the film so important, Michael, is because there's so much coming at us, it's it's easy to forget these very important moments. Well, I I that's I'm glad you picked up on that Rose. Of course you would. You're very good at this, but it it it, it and it is true that that was our effort was to try to remind people of what you know what happened because as you say it's just it's a it's a fire hose of information coming at us and a lot of it is vitriol and you know you just don't want to know and uh it it scares me because i've been doing this a long time and i i think of this election as probably the most important election in my lifetime and yet i think a lot of people uh, even progressives and, and and many and many what you would call liberals and and people who are kind of independent and don't know who to vote for. I think I think it's all so nasty that they've kind of turned it all off. And, and I worry desperately about what's going to happen in November. Um, uh, and especially to the democracy, if there's if if once again, an election happens that's so close to call 
that Trump or Biden or the forces for Trump or the forces for Biden feel that the election was somehow rigged or stolen this go around or something untoward happened. And the democracy, which I think is kind of teetering anyway, given what's happened with the GOP and what's or the Republican Party and what's happening with the battle with Trump and all the cases with Trump kind of campaigning in courtrooms uh, as he's, uh, you know, his his campaign is 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 not in shopping malls and and uh, kissing babies. He's in courtrooms uh, fighting for his uh, fighting for his life and his reputation. And he's using it to his advantage, I think. So a lot of people just it's just a lot of noise. And I'm afraid I'm afraid for low turnout or whatever it is to result in a really, really close election. Uh, and and therefore both sides can complain about uh, about it. And I, I think that's just not good for the American democracy. We're speaking with Michael Kirk, an award-winning documentary filmmaker and director of the new frontline film, Democracy on Trial. It looks at the January 6th committee's evidence, the threat to democracy, and the historic charges against Donald Trump. This is a pre-taped Your Call, so I'm sorry we cannot take your phone calls. I want to ask you also about what it was like to interview pretty staunch conservatives who stood up to Trump. I mean, Rusty Bowers, I think, is one of the best examples. Um, Rusty Bowers is a longtime Arizona Republican who supported Trump's 2020 reelection campaign. He told you how he was pressured by Donald Trump. And you all did a great job, obviously, interviewing people, because I remember watching Rusty Bowers testify. And of course, it was really intense and somber. But with all of you, he actually had a laugh about mm -hmm. a few things. And that really stood out for me because he's a very serious person. Um, he describes a phone call before Arizona's certification of Biden's victory in which Trump and then his then lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, asked him to swap in electors for Trump, citing cases of voter fraud for which they could provide no evidence. I mean, he was floored by this. He, he said... He, he he's laughing when he says it. He says, "I I started to wonder, well, what planet am I on?" <laughs> I mean, just everything about him. This uh, LDS, uh, very serious uh, man, very conservative, Trump supporter. Uh, all the things that you're easy stereotypes of who would be the speaker of the house in Arizona uh, would be. And you would think that, uh, as he said, Rudy Giuliani would say, uh, said to him when they finally met, hey, uh, aren't we all Republicans here? Give us a break. Can you help us uh, do this, what is essentially an illegal act? And Rusty said, no, I, I, I said the words that gave me, uh, Rose, optimism for the, for the future to the extent that I have any which is he said, uh, here's this conservative man who says, I swore an oath to the Constitution of the United States. And if you're asking me to break my oath, I can't do that. I won't do that, no matter how much I like Donald Trump, no matter how much I wish he was president of the United States, I will not do that. And that that happened also with Gabe Sterling in Georgia, uh, Brad Raffensperger, uh, these people, all of whom were big time Trump supporters, long serving, long standing uh, uh, conservative Republicans, when it came down to do I do what the president and Giuliani want me to do, which is break my oath, 
or do I stand by my oath to the Constitution? And as I say, it gave me some hope for the future that if local officials everywhere who have their fingers on the levers of of uh, of, uh, of power when it comes to an election, um, if 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 they were willing to stand by it, uh, then then it all is not sort of lost. And that's what I thought came out of the out of those stories about Georgia and Arizona. And uh, and Rusty is is you know as somebody in the committee said, he's a great American and he's a great story and it's a great story uh, that he has to tell about how the president of the United States and his attorney Rudy Giuliani tried to make him commit what he considers to be an illegal act. And you know what's so sad about Rusty Bowers? This hasn't gotten that much attention, but Trump supporters accused him of being a pedophile and a pervert. I mean, they're so obsessed with calling people pedophiles. They blared loudspeakers in his neighborhood when his severely ill daughter, who sadly has died since then, was at home during these... people, you know, threatening the man in, in, in front of his own home. I mean, I've this seen, is one of so many examples. Exactly. I've seen the video of his, of his house when the, <sighs> when the truck, pickup trucks drive by and everybody's yelling and screaming at him. And this was a very popular Arizona politician who just like a light switch got flipped. And he was suddenly his daughter, who's in a front facing bedroom. She's in her I guess early forties and she's dying mm. and, uh, and, uh, the noise, the blaring horns, the people, uh, yelling at him. Uh, and he is the classic, uh, your listeners, if they see the film, they'll recognize Rusty. He's the classic. I'm from Idaho. So I get to say this, he's a raw boned Westerner. Right. <laughs> and, and, and so I like to think of my, and, and uh, I see, I see Rusty and I recognize Rusty. I really do as as a, a person from the West uh, who's standing up for something that he really believes in. It's right out of a movie and he would be, you know, Gary Cooper or something. Mm. So you've got this horrific violence and then you add in the racism and it, it takes it to another level. I mean, if that's even possible to watch Ah, the death threats. To think of the death threats that Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss received. Again, two black women, a mother and a daughter who were election officials in Georgia. And it's so intense to watch this in the film. Rudy Giuliani accuses them of passing around USB ports as if they are vials of heroin or cocaine. Mm. What Shay Moss's mom was passing her was a ginger mint. And Shay Moss testified... Uh, Ruby Freeman, her mom was right behind her. It was just devastating to watch. They received such an intense amount of racist vitriol and threats. You and your team interviewed former Georgia Democratic State Senator Jen Jordan, who told you she got so many emails, and I'm sorry to have to say this, but calling for Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss to be strung up. What are your thoughts about the, the racist, violent elements of all of this? Well, it's the South. I'm I'm sorry to say that, but it's the South. I'm not saying racism is unique to the South by any stretch of the imagination, but there, there, uh, it was right. It's so much right on the surface in lots of ways. The 
one of the reasons Benny Thompson, who ran the committees from Mississippi, been been in the House a long, long time. He says the main reason he got involved in politics and the main reason he got involved in running the committee was when he saw those Confederate battle flags that he remembers as a young boy in the South when they were trying to stop uh, uh, Martin Luther King and others from uh, in, in all the voting rights challenges. So he's very big on, on uh, uh, vo voter rights. And to see those, when he saw those Confederate battle flag flags at the doors of the Capitol as it was being uh, uh, assaulted and taken down, uh, uh, he thought, you know, this is, this is so uh, Southern in so many ways, we really have to, and, and racist, obviously, in so many ways, we really, we really have to get at the bottom of this and try to root this out. That's very much the case of what happened to Ruby and, uh, and, and uh, her daughter, Shay, uh, and, and Rudy Giuliani, you know, shame on him. I mean, he, he does lose a civil suit for tens of millions of dollars, uh, uh, for his uh, slander and defamation of them, but the shamefulness of it all mm -hmm. and how it got down to that level. It's not even like you're having a political dispute. You're having some other level of, uh, of anger and, uh, and all the rest. And it appeared like Giuliani was like trying to whip up his support, the supporters of the president in this. And, and when you're whipping people up with racism, it's, uh, it's it's maybe it's not a hard sell. It was certainly shocking and devastating to the two women. And it's one of the most difficult sequences I've ever cut together because we were, it sounds silly, but we felt so sad while we were making it. Uh, and, and even when you watch it, it's hard to keep a tear down your, to not just start crying because it's just so sad and, and uh, that it would come to that especially Rudy Giuliani, America's mayor. I mean, mm. we all, right, we all thought here's this heroic figure. I guess the more we learn about Rudy, the less we believe that. Well, and as you said, in December, Giuliani was ordered to pay $148 million to Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, much more than what they asked for. And lawyers say he's going to go bankrupt because of all of this. Uh, I think there, I think that seems really likely, and and also he's run up a heck of a lot of legal bills that apparently his friend Donald Trump hasn't paid yet. Mm. So, well, like many of the attorneys who work for uh, the former president, Trump's answer to why he doesn't pay them in lots of ways is because either they didn't win or he didn't like them, or uh, they're getting plenty of publicity just being my attorney. That, that's that's more than all the money I can pay them. There was also footage in the documentary of Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn. This is a Black officer who's been so outspoken. I've never seen this footage before. He's crying as he is watching the footage of rioters beating up police officers on January 6th. And again, I think it's just so important to talk about the racist elements of this. We learned during his testimony after he told some of the writers, yeah, I voted for Biden, doesn't my vote count? A woman in a pink MAGA hat shirt yelled, you hear that, guys? This N-word voted for Biden. And then a crowd of 20 yelled, boo effing N-word. I just wonder, Michael, how do you think the media is talking about, should talk about this element of Trump supporters, the outright racist element of Trump supporters? I think the media, major media, is really still struggling with all of this. It is true that in the newsrooms of America, I mean, I'm not in the newsrooms of America, but I, I hear about it from 
people. We interview people who work in the newsrooms, uh, the major newspapers in America. And uh, it's a real challenge what to do about this. Uh, are there always two sides to every story? How do you how do you inject a sense of fairness? I mean, the man is, how do you give him respect, the respect due? Are you innocent until proven guilty in the American justice system? Shouldn't the press give you the same break that will happen in a courtroom? These kind of arguments occur in every newsroom, in every decision about what you air and what you don't air. For a long time, there were big fights at places like the Washington Post about whether you could, younger reporters were saying, he's a racist, we have to call him a racist, or he's a liar. When can we use the word liar around Donald Trump? Uh, it, it, and, and after the first year or so of the Trump term, uh, it started to become and especially after Charlottesville and a couple of other incidents, it became something newsrooms reluctantly but occasionally did do, which was say what he said was racist and or, you know, uh, in, inciting violence. It's a very, very, very tough problem for journalism, which tries to say there are two sides. There's let's think about the implications of of saying somebody's a racist it's a very it's a very uh, hot topic now inside journalism. What do you do? Uh, how do you tell people you're in an election year? How do you what do you do about one candidate when one candidate has, according to the Washington Post, lied thirty three thousand times during his first term and around all of this, his his supporters and his his uh, lawyers, some of his lawyers, half of his lawyers, a big part of his lawyers, not his White House legal staff, but other lawyers say patently absurd things. I mean, Giuliani said, what did he say? He said to Rusty, we have theories, not evidence, mm. right? We don't have evidence, but we have a lot of theories. And Rusty, you know, in our film starts cracking up, starts laughing and saying, are you kidding me? And that phrase found its way into the Jack Smith indictments. We have theories, but not evidence. We have no evidence. You wonder, would the MAGA supporters, if they heard that, would they, would that cause people to say, well, wait a minute, I, you know, and, and how are you supposed to report that and balance that out if you're supposed to balance it out? It's a very difficult problem if you're trying to be fair. And it's one we all wrestle with all the time. And it's an important ethical issue. And it's, in, it's an important truth issue. How do you get to the truth and how do you tell the truth, especially when the truth looks so bad for one of the candidates? Um, so it's a it's a good question. And it's a it's a hard it's a hard one to deal with and and find yourself still being fair. And do you give the benefit of the doubt to Donald Trump by now? Um, that's really the kind of question newsrooms are facing all the time. Well, and we've got nine months of 24 seven election coverage. I know. Right. Uh, it's just nonstop. And so we're always asking, what have reporters learned from 2016 and 2020 and everything that you bring up in the film? Yeah, that's the that's the question. When you when you know it and you and the, I mean the wonderful lucky, let me just say, I'm one of the most fortunate people in journalism because we have the money. It's not lavish, but we have the money to make a real film, work for six, seven, eight months on it, have a lot of people working on it edit for months, lots of research, and lots of, I mean, so time, time to research, time to edit, time to write it, time to follow it up and check it out, and then time on the air. We have two and a half hours of prime time 
plus uh, the streaming. Uh, you know, we're very, very fortunate. What if you had to do it in a five-minute news clip or even a 12-minute news clip? How do you tell this whole story in some way that really uh, somebody could watch it and say, all right, I understand what this is all about and why this is such a big thing? And that became our role. Not so much how do you let Trump off the hook or not? I didn't want to address that question. I just said, let's tell it as truthfully and as straightforwardly as we can with Republicans telling us the story. Mm. So it does not feel like it's uh, a lot of New England, you know, Ivy League reporters and people we interview that are talking about this. Michael, let's hijack Fox and just play this over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> that that's what well, that's what we need if it wasn't illegal rose we'd be good. <laughs> michael kirk is an award-winning documentary filmmaker and director of the new pbs frontline documentary democracy on trial it examines the january 6th committee's evidence the threat to democracy and the historic charges against donald trump you can watch democracy on trial at pbs.org frontline on the pbs app or on Frontline's YouTube channel. You can find links at yourcallradio.org. Michael, thank you so much to you and your team for another really important documentary, and thank you for joining us. Thanks, Rose, very much. It's a pleasure, and thanks for spreading the word. Thank you. This is Your Calls Media Roundtable. I'm Rose Aguilar. We'll be back after this.